the time, neither of us knew he was going to go to outer space. That happened while we were doing that. So the day he went to space was the day we sent the proposal to publishers. And within 48 hours, we had a deal. Good morning. You're listening to the Cranbrook Living History podcast series presented by myself, Dr. David Thomas. In this episode, I will be talking with old Cranbrookian Josh Brandon from the class of 2001. Josh, uh, if I may, welcome first. Uh, good to see you again. Good to see you. You left in 2001, and that was the, the year, the first year of uh, Mr. Maiden as headmaster. That's right. Can you give us a, just a few reflections? Yeah, I remember it was really weird because a lot of us were very attached to Dr. Carter. And I remember, I think I guess I was in year 10 when they announced that he would be leaving. I think originally it was going to be at the end of 1999 and then he got an extra year. So we had him on the year 11 conference, which was a big coming of age thing for a lot of us. And then to have this this new bloke come in was a bit of a challenge. But I remember really, really liking Mr. Maiden. I thought he was very optimistic and open-minded and I, I had good memories of him and he was somebody, I, just like Dr. Carter, somebody I could just walk into his office and talk to about whatever was going on and whatever qualms I had at the time and, and he was very, very willing to listen. Well, that's good. Tell me, tell me what, what, what do you think that uh, you only had one year with uh, Maiden but you had five years with Dr. Carter. Give us a few uh, impressions of Dr. Carter. I always felt that Dr. Carter knew every student intimately. Like he knew who we were, what our passions were. He always had time for each of us. He taught us how to shake hands when we were in the junior school. Firm firm grip, two to three seconds, look the person in the eye. And I always remember he was a bit witty too. I uh, He always had time for a joke. And I used to send him the crap videos that I was making of me and my friends running around making movies. And, and he would get back to me and say, oh, he'd always find something. I knew they weren't very good, but I like to think I made a lot of my mistakes when I was younger. So I didn't have to make them in my professional career. But I remember he'd always point out something like, oh, James Drury is very good in that, isn't he? So he always had a lot of time for us. And I, I was always very appreciative of that. That's good. I mean, yes, he, he, he was definitely a, um, a student-centered headmaster. I mean, I, I think that you, you and your predecessors over the 15 years of his head, head, headmastership were very, very fortunate to have him. I think, you know, that uh, he took a lot of time and uh, spent a lot of time with the boys. Well, that's good. Thank you for that. In 2001, in your last year of school, you produced 12 Angry Men. Tell us about that experience. Well, I had been turned on to the, the movie version, the old black and white one that Sidney LeMay directed by my cousin Stephen. And he said, oh, you should watch this. I was very into legal shows at the time. See, I, I didn't know as a kid that whenever I had an interest in something, it wasn't because I wanted to do that thing. It was because I actually wanted to tell stories. So when I was a kid, I'd watch Backdraft and think I want to be a firefighter. And then I'd watch some you know, LA law or whatever and think I wanted to be a lawyer or watch ER and think I wanted to be a doctor, but really I just wanted to tell stories. And at that time I was in my storytelling, legal lawyer kind of a mind. And he said, go watch this. And I just, I thought it was such a good story. And being at a boys school, it made perfect sense for us to put it on. And there, every now and then there was a student directed play and it usually came up just from a student who was interested. So I, I went to Mr. Wickham and I said, I want to do this. And, and he assigned Tony Donaldson to supervise me. And it was, it was really, really fun. I was, I was really blown away. The only thing is I didn't want to be in it, but I cast Evan, Evan Hughes. I cast him as the, the um, juror number three, which is the, one of the, the main pivotal roles. It's Henry Fonda as juror number eight in the film and George C. Scott as juror number three. And so it was a big, big emotional role. And then he got Thrippany Opera, I guess, with Askham, and he dropped out, and I had to do the role. And then three years later, I did the same play at uni, and I wasn't in it. And then our actor playing the old man threw his back out on the last night, and I had to get into makeup and play the old man. So I just couldn't get away from performing in that play, even though I never had any intention to do that. Some people have suggested that um, 12 Angry Men is more of an emotional roller coaster ride than responding to the situation in that courtroom in a more in intellectual way is, is does that make sense absolutely it really comes down to juror number three's own problems with his son that's what it's really about and this is his way of getting revenge he can't see the forest for the trees on the actual case which is funny because if you look at all of the facts I was always in, in a 50-50 mind as to whether the kid on trial actually killed his father. 
But the point was there was enough doubt so that that crept in. But it really comes back to his own feelings about his son. And it's I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's such a powerful play. Yes, yes. I, 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 I remember seeing your production at school. I, I, don't, I don't think I've seen it since. So, yes. Oh, well, that, that's interesting. And now tell me, what, so that sort of experience, how, how does that play out in your later life? I mean, you know, since you left Cranbrook and, and went to university and then went to the States. I mean, is that a seminal point in your in your sort of artistic career? I would say so. I, getting the opportunity was really important. I don't know how many schools would have given me that opportunity. And that's not to say it wasn't challenging along the way. I mean, you're in year 12, you're directing a bunch of your peers and, and year 10 and year 9 and 11 and whatever. And there's certainly some clashes of personality. You have to take on all this responsibility, showing up to rehearse during the holidays. Are kids going to be late? Are they going to know their lines and all that? So I do remember having some challenges. But it definitely, it allowed me, I think, to express some leadership aspects of my personality that I didn't really have a chance to express elsewhere. And that carried through to university and carried through to coming over to the States. And then, you know, now I produce films and I, I run companies and I have a lot of people under me. And I think learning just how to manage those different personalities played a big part in that. And a lot of that started with being allowed to direct a play. That's fantastic. Tell me, um, just before we leave the uh, Cranbrook scene as, as a focus, what else from Cranbrook did you did you take away? I mean, I won't lie. My time at Cranbrook was challenging. I I remember that there was there was a bit of bullying, and I sort of mentioned that several years ago when I think I was interviewed when I was working on the TV show Haven, and I actually had a, a fellow student reach out to me on Facebook and say, "Hey, I read your." read your interview and I bullied you at high school and I wanted to apologize. And I, I was really chuffed by that. You know, you don't know what you're doing at that age. And certainly you fall into clicks and all that sort of stuff. It was hard to, to really want to be artistic and not cop a lot of flack for it. And I think, honestly, I, I feel that as tough as that situation was, it really allowed me to double down on what I wanted to do. And it proved if I was willing to go through the teasing and the, you know, people making fun of the movies I was making on the side and all that sort of stuff. If I was willing to go through that at school, then I could handle that in the real world. Sure. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And uh, it's a very important lesson, isn't it, to learn while you're young and, and to move on. And it's very interesting, too, that that, that that person actually was in touch with you to apologize after after so many years yes yeah and i and i guess that's the power of social media which i admittedly don't use very much anymore because i i find it just saps my time and my energy but it was available that this person found me on facebook and reached out and said i apologize for my part in that and the funny thing was that person wasn't someone i really associated with bullying me all that much and then only after he said it did i realize Oh, yeah, I remember some of that stuff, which is a shame because I also remember that in junior school, we got along really well. So somehow we just lost the thread. He was more sporty. And much as I loved playing sport, I was never at that level. And so I was a little more artistic. But those are, I guess, things that happen at school. But unlike, I guess, what it was like in my dad's generation, you didn't have to wait until you saw somebody at the 20-year reunion to, to kind of hear that, which was nice. That's nice, yes. Sorry, I, I will ask you one more question about Cranbrook, and that is uh, Mr. Wickham. Give us a few uh, impressions of uh, Robert Wickham because because while you weren't you know at the top of the the sports tree and this is the area that, that you loved being involved with you know the artistic side and dealing with every other thing that you had to deal with at school Wickham Wickham was a a huge personality and he you know he took on anybody and everybody like I remember him taking on the rugby coaches because uh, people weren't turning up to uh, rehearsals, right? And he'd walk down to, to um, Horden and just pull them off, you know, and then there'd be a fight between him and the rugby coaches. So, yes, I mean, he, he was able to, to nurture you and, and, and to encourage you, you know? I mean, and I meant you group that were involved right. with him. Is he going to listen to this? No. <laughs> I had a very tough relationship with Mr. Wickham. I really did. I actually at times felt that he was making things a lot harder for me than they needed to be. And one of the, it's so funny that I wound up writing this book with William Shatner because there was one rehearsal for, 
I want to say, our country's good. And they changed the rehearsal from a Saturday to a Sunday at the last minute. And I was a big Star Trek fan growing up. It's fun to say now. Back then it wasn't fun. But my mother had arranged for us to go see William Shatner when he was coming to town to promote a book or whatever it was. And we had tickets on the Sunday. And so she wrote Mr. Wickham a very nice letter saying, you know, the rehearsal's been moved. We already had plans. I'm taking Joshua to see William Shatner. He's a big fan, all that sort of stuff. Would it be possible for him to skip this rehearsal or arrive late or whatever it was? And in front of the entire rehearsal, he said, I don't care how much you bloody like Star Trek. If you don't come to this rehearsal, you're not going to be in this play. And that was devastating for me because that was just giving grist to my enemies because that was something I was trying to keep on the down low. I mean, that was a pretty nerdy thing to want to go see William Shatner. But I grew up watching that show with my mother who grew up watching it in Montreal where Shatner is from. So we always had this kind of connection to it. And then I do remember after doing 12 Angry Men, he <laughs> he said, uh, I saw your play on Friday night or whatever. And I said, oh, great. That's, that's wonderful. And he said, I only have two things to tell you. One, the pieces of evidence should have had evidence tags on them. I said, oh, I, yeah, I guess I hadn't thought of that. And now he'd give, he had asked Mr. Donaldson to supervise. And so this one, <laughs> I always remember this. He said, I think I'll supervise the student play next year. So for whatever reason, he and I did not get along. And the only, the only thing, this is going to sound really petty, but it's 22 years ago now, when, when it was the end of the year and you used to go give chocolates to all your teachers and whatever, there were three teachers who had desks in the drama room. I think Mrs. Menzies, I want to say. Yeah, and Menzies. So, yeah. yeah, Pam Menzies. And then there was another, there was a male teacher who was there for a little bit whose name I've forgotten. I left nice big boxes of chocolates on their table and I left nothing on Wickham's desk. Well, that's a point. Yeah. <laughs> now, you will keep talking about uh, Donaldson. Yeah. Do you mean Ronaldson? I guess I do. Yes, yes. Tony uh, Ronaldson. Tony Ronaldson, not Donaldson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. An English teacher. Yes, he was yeah, yeah. great. Really, yeah, yeah. really no, That's okay. Him. That's yeah. okay. I just wanted because I'm looking back, I can't remember any Donaldsons in the, you know, that's worked here. So <laughs> over 50 years. I, I wondered because, you know, Wickham was such a, um, a nerd about doing his own thing and getting his own way. Mm -hmm. And he pushed people around. Even Carter, he pushed around, right? right. And so he, um, yeah, I can see that you wouldn't have fitted into that, to, you know, to, to his mold, you have to do this, you have right. to do this, right? And then to do a student-directed play, which was outside his immediate control, you know, he, he would always yeah. have to have some sort of, Back chat. Which was funny because that was his choice. He basically said, I'm too busy. I'm going to ask Mr. Ronaldson <laughs> Good. To, well done. To, to supervise, which is, which is such a shame because I always remember really wanting Mr. Wickham's approval. But maybe this was his way of pushing me. And yeah. it probably worked. So there you have it. You know? There you have it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's, let's move on. Uh, your career since you left Cranbrook, and we'll leave. Uh, there's university where you did... 12 Angry Men again. Did you do any other plays? Yeah, I did a lot. I actually, while I was at university, I started a theater company with my cousin, Stephen, the one who got me into 12 Angry Men. So we did Noises Off, which is my favorite play by Michael Frayn. It's the farce with the right, play yeah. and then a play. Mm. Did 12 Angry Men. I adapted Pulp Fiction for the stage, which was fantastic. A lot of fun. I directed Closer, the Patrick Marber play. I did Rent, which I won an award for. And Lend Me a Tenor, which is another great farce. There's probably one or two I'm missing in there somewhere. But yeah, I had a, I had a thriving theatre career and it's because of that that I decided, my cousin Stephen and I decided we're going to try to go to the States and see what we can do in Hollywood. Right, right. And, and did this company follow you or you, you then closed that and started again? We closed it down, yeah. yeah, yeah we just thought yeah. that there's really no way to, no. to manage that from overseas. But we, no. had a, we had a good run. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. Once you got to the States, uh, tell us about where the direction... Went Well, the funny thing about going to LA was I thought I've got this theater experience. I've, I've got all these things that I've been doing. This will be great. I'll land, I'll, I'll meet some people and I'll show them what I can do. And then they'll go, great, we're happy to have you here. But it did not work like that at all. They didn't need me. They have a thousand or 10,000 of me. So it was basically like starting again. No one cared that I had done theater in Australia. No one cared about any of that. So I had to really, really work hard just to get a 
production assistant job. And those are really, really hard to get. And even now, you've got to know someone who knows someone who knows someone, or you've just got to get very, very lucky. And in those days, you could still fax your resume around. So I did that with a few jokes. And that wound up out of 50 resumes, I got one response and wound up getting a job as a PA on a a four-week pilot at Warner Brothers. And I remember, you know, $600 a week, but driving around on the little golf carts and talking to a PA friend of mine. And I said, this is crazy. Look at this place. There's so much history. And he said, dude, I remember this. He's this big American guy. He goes, dude, there are people who dream their whole lives of coming here to take the studio tour. And here we are working here, even though we're the lowest on the totem pole. It was, it was a really, really surreal experience. Isn't that wonderful? So, so, so you start with that particular job and then you move. Well, that's the thing. In, in Hollywood, you always, you always seem to think that once you've got a job, you've made it. But the reality is the paradigm shifts every single time. So I thought, great, I'm on this show. It'll get picked up. I'll be a PA on the show, maybe for a couple of years. Maybe I can move up, be a writer's assistant, maybe break into that writing world. But the pilot wasn't picked up. So I was out of a job. But they were going to demolish the building I was working in. And so they didn't care that we hung around for a little while. And just by quirk of fate, my parking pass was supposed to expire at the end of March 2009. But it ex- but they had a typo and it said May 2009. So I went to the unit production manager and I said, hey, since they're not demolishing this building for a little while, do you mind if I just come in and use that office because my parking pass still works? And he said, yeah, sure. Use it as a base of operations. So that meant when I was calling prospective managers or producers and trying to have meetings with them, I could invite them onto the Warner Brothers lot to have lunch at the commissary. So I looked a lot more important than I was. And then the producer in charge of post-production, who was still there supervising the editors, he kept coming in every day and seeing me at work. And finally, after a couple of weeks, he said, I'm confused. Do you still work here? I said, no. And then I I explained the whole, the office, the parking pass, whatever. And he said, I love that. What's your next job? And I said, I don't have a next job. He said, I've got a job for you. And he hired me to be his post-production assistant on a TV show. And then I wound up doing that for a few months. And during that time, worked with my cousin. We wrote some stuff and we wound up in 2010 getting a general meeting at ABC Family, which is now called Freeform. And they asked us, do you have any ideas? And we pitched them a couple of things. And, and then we got a call actually while I was in Australia saying, hey, they, they want to buy that as a pilot. They want, they want you to write that for them. So I thought, oh my goodness, we've made it. We're going to write a pilot for ABC Family. So we wrote it and they didn't pick it up. So we got paid for the script and then what do you do next? So it was just a lot of riding that wave and looking for your next opportunity. And then two years later, we got staffed on a TV show. We've made it. We're writers. We worked on a TV show for CBS called Friend Me. And it never aired. So once wow. again, the paradigm shifts. Yeah, yeah. So so you just have to meet those waves, right? Yeah. And you have to just ride them and just keep going. And uh, find them. <laughs> oh, yeah, find them. That's correct. Find them. Correct. So so, so you're doing this, right? You're, you're going up and down, up and down, waiting for the next uh, wave. Right. What happened next? Well, from there... My cousin and I had been writing together, but he was more focused on comedy and I actually wanted to get more into character drama. And so after Friend Me didn't air, we kind of sat down and went, all right, well, if we were ever going to pursue our different paths, this seems like the right time to do it. So he stayed in comedy and I went into drama. And then throughout 2013, I was writing, I was looking for work, I was pitching shows. That's when you go in and you say, here's the show and here's the characters and all that. Do you want to buy it? but I didn't sell anything. And then in 2014, I got hired to work on a sci-fi series called Haven. And I got to work on the last two seasons of that show. From there, I progressed. I got a job as a story editor on a show that was very dear to my heart that nobody saw called Houdini and Doyle, which was a fictionalized account of the true friendship between Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini in the early 1900s. And I'm a novice magician. So that show was an absolute dream for me. We wrote it in LA but produced it in Northern England. So I got to go over when my episode was on and and I was there for three weeks in Manchester and Liverpool, working with the actors, seeing these incredible old cobblestone streets we would shoot on and these amazing sets to make it look like 1901. And then we did post-production in Toronto. And what I used to do between jobs, I would reach out to former producers and showrunners that I knew or I'd worked with. And I'd say, what are you doing? Can I come shadow you? So friend of mine, um, Robert Duncan McNeil, who's a big director in TV, he invited me to come see him on a set that he was working on. So I spent a week in Vancouver with him. 
one of my Haven showrunners, Sean Pillar, was doing a show in Toronto. So I went up and I shadowed him in directing and I shadowed him in post-production. And then one of those trips I was planning to go up and I realized that I would be in the same post-production facility that Houdini and Doyle was going to be edited in and all that. So I reached out to my Houdini and Doyle showrunner and I said, I'm going to be at Technicolor on the last week of January, whatever. Is there anything that I can that I can come and see? And he said, well, not only are we doing, we're, we're mixing the episode, that's the sound mix. Not only are we mixing your episode, but I'm coming up to do it. So why don't you come and do it with me? So just a lot of these opportunities presented themselves because I put myself in the right place at the right time and just asked. And so from there, kind of by osmosis, I sort of learned a little bit like what I was talking about with the play and the leadership and all that. When the opportunity came to direct a short film, I thought, all right, I'll give this a shot. Let's see if I know what I'm doing here. And I didn't know where exactly the light meter needed to read or anything like that, but I surrounded myself with people who did know and were willing to do me favors because we'd all moved up at the same level. So my director of photography has since won an Emmy. My editor has been nominated twice for an Emmy. So these are the folks that I was there with because we all started as lowly production assistants. And from there, November 2019 comes along and, and I've got an opportunity to direct a film that I wrote. And I thought, yeah, I can do this because I've been around this long enough to kind of know what I'm doing. And that film was? A Thousand Little Cuts thousand on little Showtime little. in the States. We still don't have a distribution deal here in, in exactly. Australia. Yeah. We're working I, I went it. looking for it, right? So just before we get there, um, we need to get there. Haven. Now, having looked you know, you up on Google and all that sort of rubbish, and you know, um, I was able to get a trailer, a small trailer on Haven. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> in, in what way? Well, as in like it, it's uh, horror. Well, it's based on a Stephen King short story. Right. So it's got that whole something weird is happening in this town in yeah, Maine kind yeah. of feel to well, it. Well, it, 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 for me, I, I immediately thought of the, um, the Salem Witch Trials, right? Right. And it's obviously based around that, is it? It's, it's got a, a lot of influence from that because, and they, they actually reuse this term from a different context, but it's, it's about a small town called Haven, Maine, which is fictionalized. And there are people there who have what they call the Troubles. But it's not Northern Ireland. It's it refers to these accidental powers that come out. Like there's in the in the pilot episode, there's a woman whose mood changes the weather, and so it's all about trying to control those things. And then this woman, who's an FBI agent, comes to town, and she's investigating, and then she sees a photograph of a woman from 27 years ago who looks exactly like her, who she thinks is her mother, and so she stays and tries to figure it all out. And then there's a lot of sci-fi and fantasy sort of stuff, but. It had a very, very, very loyal following, and that's why it was on the air for six years against against all the odds, and I was really thrilled to be there. Well, that's good. So, so your role in that was what? I was hired as the script coordinator, which is somebody who basically proofreads all of the scripts, makes sure that everything is consistent, tracks all the changes between drafts, and then I was promoted to write an episode and, and was in the writer's room working on stories and basically charting the course of the show. And it was funny because... It was my first experience as a writer in a room and we were ending the show. And most shows don't get to do that. We just kind of knew we're probably not getting renewed after this, these two seasons because they were ordered back to back. So we went, let's actually end this show. And in the last four episodes, they wanted someone to play the ultimate bad guy on the show. And because the show was a Canadian co-production and was shot in Nova Scotia, they could get a lot of tax breaks if they hired some Canadian talent. So the word came around from the, the top producers what do you think about going after William Shatner? And there was a big debate in the writer's room because he was 83 at the time. And they thought, if we send this guy to Nova Scotia in winter, we're going to be the show that killed William Shatner. And a friend of mine had actually worked with him on another show. And I said, what's he like? And he said, he is unbelievably professional. He runs rings around all of us, knows his lines, shows up at five in the morning for makeup, whatever. So there's no question he won't phone it in. And when I was asked for my opinion, that's what I said. And, and it was actually a pretty split vote. And I think, I think the pro Shatner case won by one or two votes. And they offered him the role and he took it and he won a Saturn Award for it. So it was great. Well, that's uh, pretty heavy. I would really like to see some of that sort of stuff you know, in full. But it was a it was a series, right? A it was. I mean, it would no, no, six seasons. So, six the, seasons. if I showed you those episodes, you'd have no context for what happened. I remember I showed my episode, which was the fifth or sixth last one in the year. I showed it to my parents, and my dad, who's very painfully honest, said, "I think it was good. I have no idea what was going on." Oh, there you go. There you go. So, 
that's um, so in that you you had a a proactive role. You were you were the the writer's assistant, the, the script coordinator, the script coordinator. Yep. Oh my goodness, I'll get all <laughs> these terms right. Okay, so so then what? Twenty nineteen, you went into you had the opportunity to do your own film. I did. Yep. And and this is directing. I yeah wrote and directed and produced. Wrote it. and direct and produced. Right. Yep. So tell us about that experience. Well, it was just again. It, it's a lot of. I don't know if if people are going to say yes, so I'm going to ask. And it was a lot of that. So, for example, I'd worked with this wonderful Canadian actress named Rebecca Lydiard in in England doing Houdini and Doyle, and I wrote this movie for her. And when I called her and said, "Look, I know you're probably too busy," she had another series on the air in Canada. I said, "I've written a movie for you." And at whatever reason, at that exact moment, she said, "I needed to hear that." I really needed to hear that because she just she missed out on another part. Her show was going to end in a year or two. And so she signed on. A lot of people worked for scale, which means you work for the, the minimum that you're allowed per the union contract. Just a lot of favors and a lot of people coming together. And in particular, that that was a story that on its surface seems to be about one thing, but is really about domestic abuse. And so a lot of women in particular were very interested in telling that story. And it was weird because I was a guy writing about all of this stuff. But in some ways, I kind of likened it to the concept of women will go see a male pop star, but men mostly won't go see a female pop star. And so I thought if I could make the movie in a way that would get men to go see it, then maybe that's a way into the conversation. That's interesting. Yes. I mean, it's uh, so who financed this film? Well, the state of Oklahoma kicked in 35%, so that was very handy. Why? Why? They had a film incentive. They had a rebate program that unfortunately is not as good as it used to be. And at the time, though, 35% and and, and shooting in these small towns where people are just happy to have a film being made so they don't charge you thousands and thousands of dollars to use their location. Some of them would let you use them for free. They said, okay, but can I be in the background? I'll let you use the restaurant for free. We'd say, yeah, sure. Oh, and do you want to do the catering? So they loved when we came into town. And then a bunch of it I put together just through some sources that I had picked up along the way. And a lot of it was my money, just taking a shot on myself. Was it a success? Well, ultimately, that remains to be seen because it hasn't made all of its money back, but we've only sold it in a couple of territories. Right. Commercially, in terms of its response, the reviews were great. And most importantly, I feel it was my first film and Showtime bought it. Showtime doesn't pay a lot, but they're very prestigious. So to have Showtime buy your first film, I think, is pretty pretty indicative of success, even if I haven't got all the money back yet. <laughs> so, so the people in the movie, uh, the actors, actresses, whatever you call them, actors, did they go on and do other things? Was this a, a, a sort of stepping stone for some of those people? Oh, no, they were very well established already. Oh, they were well established, Yeah, right. so, so I was lucky enough to get... It, it's mostly about this young woman and a psychiatrist who's trying to help her remember a traumatic event. And it's told in flashback and unstable narration while she's trying to get this info out of her in the hospital room. And I got Marina Sirtis, who, another Star Trek name that I just met along the way. She was on Star Trek The Next Generation for seven years, did four movies, did the recent reboot on Paramount+. Plus, and she read the script as well. And I thought, um, you know, the casting director told me, you'll never get Marina. She'll want her quote, which would be, even for an indie would be fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and the budget was two fifty total. And I said, "You know what? I've met her. I know her. Let me send her the script." And I did, and she took me to lunch, and she said, "No one writes things for me." She was sixty three sixty four at the time. She said, "People my age, women actors my age, just don't get offered parts like this." So she was very, very happy to be in. And then there are other people who were bigger names than I expected to be able to land. One of them is Colin Ferguson, who starred on a show called Eureka for five years. He was in Vampire Diaries. He's been in everything. You'd recognize him if you saw him. And he had worked on Haven. And the only reason I knew him was because he was he was in the episode I wrote, but I didn't get to go to Nova Scotia to watch them shoot it. I was actually on my honeymoon at the time. And so when we were doing director and audio and writer commentaries for the DVD, he and I came in to record commentary for the episode and we really hit it off. So again, my casting director said, I don't think you can get Colin, even if it's for two days, his his people are going to demand lots of money. And I said, let me write him a letter. And I sent him a letter saying, this is what we have. We have $5,000 for three days work. I know it's not much, but you were there when I got my first episode of television produced and you made it so incredible. This is my first film. Would you be willing to do this? And he wrote back and he said, this is the nicest thing anyone's ever written to me. I'm in 100%. And he was just a lovely guy. And in September this year, I'm shooting my next movie and he's the star of it. So there you go. 
Well, there you go. So $250,000, not much, is it? No, really not much. And you have to get yourself around the country, or was it in a small area? It, well, that's that was the luxury of shooting in a really small town in Oklahoma. You could afford to cut some corners because you didn't have to pack up the trucks and move every time you needed to change locations. A lot of them were next to each other, and we would pick places like that. Okay, here's the park, but around the corner from the park is this street, and we're going to shoot something you know, there. And up the road is the VFW hall, and we'll shoot a scene there, and then we'll get lunch next door. So we were able to, to economize in that way. And again, just a lot of people working for scale and, and just knuckling down to get it done. Working to scale, you've said that a couple of times. Well, so the actors in the, in the, in the Screen Actors Guild, there are certain rates that- And that's the scale. That's scale, yeah. That, they will allow you to, now it's gone up a little bit, but at the time, the union would allow actors to work for $125 a day which is nothing. Mm. But if you really wanted to do a project and it was under $250,000, they would let you do that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so all those sort of things assist you, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so therefore that allows your creative genius to just continue with the, with the possibility because you've met a lot of people along the way. You've, you, you go places like you know, Scotland, Nova Scotia, Oklahoma, and so you're moving all the time, yeah? Yeah, Constantly, I mean, I mean, I'm based out of LA, and that's where I live with my wife and our three dogs, and we're obviously very happy there. But by nature of shooting in different states and doing all these location scouts and finding things and going to festivals and whatever, I, I haven't been home for more than two or three weeks at a time in the last six months. And, it was and how does your so. wife cope with that? that well, sorry, I don't mind asking no, no, a domestic no. question. It, no, it's it's tricky, but what what I was able to do. On the second film, which I also shot in Oklahoma, we were able to arrange for her to come out and spend a few days with us. Oh, so that was good. nice. Whereas yeah. on the first film, I was gone for, you know, a month and got pretty hairy with, uh, you know, why didn't you call me? And, you know, I need to hear from you more. And it, and I remember I called her once and she said, how are you? And I said, I've never been more tired or more fulfilled in my life. And so that's kind of that's what good. the game is. That's you know? good. Yeah, yeah. And so she has her own career yeah she runs a wedding planning company oh, and she right. does weddings for well then she's busy people all over the world yeah so she travels yeah, too so it's travels, fair enough yeah yeah, yeah right. she did a wedding last year in positano in italy fabulous gorgeous i wasn't allowed to go oh you're about to say did you go <laughs> no i wanted to but i wasn't allowed <laughs> oh, <laughs> they didn't need me no of course they didn't no well so um a thousand little creatures no a thousand, a thousand little cuts a thousand little cuts. it's a metaphor david yes yes thank you <laughs> uh okay all right. Now, black bags. Yes, black bags. Is it bags, bags or bags? Bags, black bags. bags. So tell us about that. So black bags just came out on demand in the US and Canada. And I guess if you have a VPN, you can probably download it from iTunes or Apple TV or Vimeo or any of those places. And this is a great little film. I didn't write this one. I just directed it. Someone found the script and then I found a writer to do a new draft of it. And so between the two of them, these two writers turned out this terrific script. I'll give you the, the short elevator pitch. Two women meet on a Greyhound bus and they have identical black suitcases. One of them gets off, takes the wrong bag home, brings it up to her bedroom, opens it, and there's a human head in the bag. And then just before she can react, there's a knock on the door. And the first woman shows up and said, I think we swapped bags. To which the, the one with the head in the bag says, oh, did we? Oh my gosh, I didn't know. Oh, here you go. Here's your bag. You fucking opened it, didn't you? Yeah, I did. All right, well, there's two things you need to know. First, he had it coming. And second, the only fingerprints on that bag are yours. So you're going to help me get rid of it. And then there's this cat and mouse that sort of plays out. And it's a real status play between these two women. And it's really, really fun. Right. And, and, and is that, would you call that a horror movie? No, it's not a horror film. It's a thriller, It's a, it's I would a say. thriller. Yeah. Right. There happens to be a head in the bag, but it's not a slasher film. Now, I, 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 I did take the time to read a couple of review, reviews of it. Oh. And one of the reviews said that it was – the solutions were too easy to find. Really? Like, yes. Like, you know, so in other words <laughs> – You found the one, the one difficult review. That's <laughs> the what rest I did. have been really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that, but you no, always right. start with the difficult ones, right? Yeah, of course. Is that okay? I mean, and so therefore – I mean, I know you didn't write it now, so therefore I was, a, I was going to take you to task for – Making it too easy for, for the, and I haven't seen it again. Right? Yeah, I, 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 I only saw the trailer. So. Right, right. Well, but then I, I, I wanted to go elsewhere. You know, 
I'll I'll, uh, I'll get a screener for you. I think you'll enjoy it. I, I don't know that I would I would say it was easy. I think they might be talking about the ending. I which, think they were. Which will divide were. audiences as as the first film I did had an ending that divides audiences as well, which is kind of the point. I want people to talk about it. But they want you to talk, right? And so yeah. therefore they'll that'll draw them back to your third film. I hope so. Which will be called Twenty Five Miles to Normal and is a family dramedy that I'm making in Massachusetts in September. Oh Massachusetts, then now that's a nice place to go to. Yeah, we're we're shooting in a little town called Worcester. Which, as Australians, we can pronounce correctly, Worcester. Yeah, I've been there. (laughs) Yep. I used to work in Massachusetts. I didn't know that. Yeah, I worked in Boston for a year back in 1982. Oh. Oh, so funny. I don't know when you had time to do that if you've been here for this long. No, no, no. I I took a year off and and I had an exchange. And uh, Mr. Bishop sent me to this school just north of Boston. Wow. And this guy I exchanged with came and lived in my house and worked here. Lived in your house. Yeah. And you and lived, I lived in his? In, and I, I lived in his dormitory. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was good. It was good. So, and that was at a place called Andover. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Worcester's to the west. Right. Right. Andover's to the north, 20 miles, right? Yeah. But if you go along... I don't know, yeah, the turnpike, or whatever they call it, going out towards the Hudson. Mm-hmm. That's where Worcester is, out yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, it's great. And it has everything we need for filmmaking because it, it's got places that look like a small town. It's got places that look like an industrial city. It's got places that look cosmopolitan, rural stuff, wood stuff. So it's really, really great. And it's it's far enough outside of Boston that you don't really disturb the bigger crews that work in Boston. So you can still get people, which is really helpful. That's good. And um- And the Teamsters won't come after you. <laughs> okay, that's good. So, so tell me, um, uh, which I've got another question about that too. But who's financing this film? And did you write this? I did write this, and I'm co-financing it with some investors. Right. Okay. And are you directing? I am directing it. Yeah. Right. And producing, or you've got someone else? To no, do? I'm producing. I produce right. all the films. It's just a question right. of how hands-on I am. But when when it's my films, I produce my own films with my team. I've got three other producers with me. And how long does that take? How long will it take? Uh, I think this one's going to be probably an 18 to 20 day shoot. So it's about a month if you include the weekends, which is longer than any shoot we've done before. Usually we shoot from anywhere from 13 to 15 days because that's Mm. what we can afford. So this one's going to cost a little bit more, but I like to shoot with two cameras and that certainly saves time and... Yeah, it's it's ambitious for me, mm. but we have you know we have deals with our sales agent distributor, and, and they'll guarantee us a certain amount. So I can go to my investors and say, "Here's what it'll cost. Here's the state incentive we'll get back from Massachusetts for every dollar we spend. Here's what we've been guaranteed from the distributor, and whatever the delta is, I'll make that up if we don't make it back in three years." Right. So it's risky, but it's risky, but yeah. but, but but that's what business is about. Well, and the other thing too is that I produce these other films that are not films that I've written or that I direct. But we make those and sell them to other outlets who want them. And so those films kind of pay for these ones. It's almost the old, you do one for them, you do one for you. But for me, it's I do four for them and then I get to do one for me. Right. And so you've, you've, you've done quite a few other smaller films, shorter right. films. Well, they're not shorter. They're still, you know, an hour right. and a half or that right. sort of thing. But right. kind of lifetime thrillers, hallmark comedies and romances and things of that nature because they're easier to sell. There's, there's a built-in audience for them. Comedies? Does your brother come onto the set? Uh, no, he hasn't yet. My my cousin Stephen hasn't made it on the set cousin. yet. Yeah. yeah. No, we used to call each other Brandon brothers because we thought it sounded better. But he has two brothers, so they were very perturbed by that. <laughs> and I don't have brothers. Of course. Now, tell me this: um, Have you ever had any industrial problems on set? No, I haven't. And we've actually. This is. It's so interesting that you ask that question because there is this unspoken blue collar white collar divide on a film crew. It's the ATL, which is above the line, that's your actors, your, your big name actors, your producers and your directors and writers, versus BTL, which is below the line. That's your grips, your directors of photography, all that sort of thing. And on black bags, I remember you're allowed to, you have to you have to stop for lunch or for a meal every six hours. Otherwise you you pay penalties or they're allowed to stop working. Even though it wasn't a union crew, we play by union rules. That's that's our ethos. And we went around and it was just about to be lunchtime and you can ask for 15 minutes maximum of grace where you're allowed to finish the shot that you're working on. And so we said, hey, we really want to finish this shot before lunch so we can move on to a different setup afterwards. Can we get 15 minutes grace? And every crew member basically has to be okay with it. So people were saying, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. And then our gaffer said, nope. And then everybody took their cue from him and we said, okay, 
I guess that's lunch. And so I, I walked up to him during lunch and I said, hey, everything okay? He said, no, it's fine. It's fine. I said, well, listen, I know I'm the director, but I'm also one of the producers. And if there's a problem, I want to know about it so I can help. And he said, look, we've been finishing after 12 hours, which is standard, but we've eaten into overtime because we're still packing up equipment after everybody else leaves. And I said, okay, uh, and are you, you're being paid for that, I assume. He said, we are. And I said, did you get a meal penalty, which is what they give you if you don't get a meal, they have to give you a penalty. He said, yeah, but you know what? After 12 hours, we're hungry. We want a meal. We want somebody to order us pizza or tacos or something. And I said, that, that makes a lot of sense. Did you tell anybody? And he said, no, because they're not used to, to bridging that divide. I said, Sam, shake my hand. It'll never happen again. And it didn't. And the one or two times we needed grace again, we got it. But that was the thing where they just weren't used to being able to to actually even right. broach the subject. So no. that's that's as far as we got in terms of difficult industrial action or anything like that. It, so, it's very so, harmonious. So this divide, ATL and BTL, is a real one. Yeah. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't matter how small the film is. It doesn't matter how well you take care of them. It's very difficult to to break that divide because people in film are used to being treated like garbage. They're used to being exploited, particularly on independent films, particularly on low-budget films. And my company, now that I get to produce these films and it's my company that sets the tone, we've tried to break that significantly with – we tell people when they show up because, you know, we only make our films for half a million bucks, usually less, closer to 400 and we say, look, you're not going to get paid the top dollar. You're not going to work with the biggest budgets or the biggest stars, but you will be taken care of. And so there are certain industry standard procedures that we go above and beyond, even though we don't usually work with a union crew because we can't afford them because they're, they're in the upper echelons. The union crews are allowed to – they have a 10-hour turnaround. That means if they go home at 10 o'clock at night, you can't call them back until 8 the next morning. We give them a 12-hour turnaround. Without question. If you have to drive a certain amount of time or a certain amount of mileage, usually if you've worked over 14 hours and you're too tired to drive home, then the producers will get you a hotel room. We say it doesn't matter how long you worked. If you're too tired to drive home, you tell us and we'll get you a hotel room for the night. And out of my own pocket, I've been paying for childcare as well, which no other indie producer will do, but I feel it's really important. And I don't want people to choose between having kids and being able to make movies, which is what we've been wanting to do since we were kids. Sure. So have you run into uh, troubles with, with, with other companies with, with, with this attitude, with this, uh, sorry, policy? No, it just makes people want to work for us. Oh, that's good. So I guess the only problem we've had with other companies is sometimes they view that we're poaching their crew. But I've said to them, we can both make movies here because we don't make a movie every month. So we should be able to share the crew around. But there's a reason they want to work for us and not for you. Sure, sure. So... Most of you, you said most of your films uh, a budget four hundred thousand. Right, right. Do you see the company growing to beyond a million? Yeah, I'd like film? to. I'd like to. the 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 interesting thing is the the sales dynamic has really changed a lot since we sort of started emerging from COVID, and now the distributors and the Netflixes and whatever, they're not paying as much as they used to. So you have to be very careful with what you can make your film for and what you know you can sell it for. So the funny thing is somebody was saying, oh, you know, we need to pay some people some more money. So why don't we just raise some more money and we'll make this for $600,000 instead of 400000 And I said, the problem is you can increase the budget like that by 50%, but your sales ceiling probably only goes up by 5 to 10%. So to get to the beyond a million dollars, that's when you're spending about half your money on cast. So you can get these names that play in Europe and play in Asia and play in North America so that buyers will give you a pre-sale. Because without that, it's very difficult to raise the money because we always like to be able to guarantee our investors cash. So yes, I do want to move to that, but responsibly. I understand. Are all your movies directed at Western audiences? Yeah, I would say so. Well, um, yes. I would say they are because they the places that buy a lot of these movies are obviously networks in, in North America. So that includes Canada and a lot of Western Europe. So they're big in Spain and, and France and all that because they can just dub them and it's very easy to see very what's going on. Very easy to on. do it, right. Yeah. yeah. But you would never think of going like an African or Asian theme? I would love to one day if I find mm -hmm. the right material. Mm -hmm. And every now and then someone will give me a script where I go, I don't know if I can get this through our usual people. 
but I think I want to make this. So for example, I got sent a really great script by a terrific writer in the States called Amber Brown, and it's called Inseparable. And it's about a young African-American woman who's an identical twin and her twin sister goes missing and the cops basically don't take it seriously. And she goes out of her way to figure out what happened. And it kind of explores police injustice and the African-American community. And I said to the writer, I worked with an actress who'd be fantastic for this, this Canadian actor. And I sat her down. Uh, well, I, I, we sat down together and we had lunch. And I said, after she'd read the script, I said, I don't know if I can sell this, but we should try to make it. So that's one of those where if you get enough, you can kind of take a little bit of a risk and look for an audience there. So, yeah, I'm definitely open to it. Right. So um, the question of race in the United States, does, does that impinge a lot from what you've just said on your movie making? You know, the unfortunate thing is that there are, there are movies where you can kind of say something and movies where you can't. And I was able to say something, I feel, about domestic abuse in a thousand little cuts because I was coming at it from, in my view, a very necessary empathetic point of view from a man who otherwise wouldn't know a lot of these things. But I don't know that I'm in the right position to tell the story about race, nor do I have all the the information, but it does permeate American society like you've never seen. Never seen. And it, it just keeps getting worse and worse, unfortunately, when yes. it should be getting better. Well, that's interesting. You know, um, I mean, you, you, you could make something that is black white for an african audience maybe or you know you know across the seas maybe or would that ruin your reputation or no i don't think so in in my industry you got to make what you got to make and you've got to you got to just produce content a lot of the time and and the thing is when when producers or agents or whoever looks at your imdb page or googles you or whatever they don't look at all of the films I produced and go, oh, I've got to see each of those, especially because some of them aren't even out yet. They just go, oh, he's been working. And that's kind of what you want to know. Yeah, that's what you, you want know? to know. Especially because a lot of it, yes, we want to make projects that move us, but a lot of the actual mechanics of it is a bit of an assembly line. It's okay, the crew says, what are we shooting today? And you tell them a couple of weeks in advance, okay, we're going to need this space and you're going to need to get these props. And they go, okay, well, let me go prepare and figure that out for you, you know? Right. So do you have a, a loyal group of groupies that follow you around in their trucks and they say, right, yeah, I'm on the next set and we'll go to Oklahoma, something like that? Or- we, we typically work with local crews, so we just right. have a few people we bring with us. Yeah. So right. we were, shoot, we've just, uh, we're about to shoot our fifth movie in a five-film slate in Florida where we moved because we can shoot there in winter and it looks terrific. So we got a local crew, but we brought in our director of photography, our gaffer, our key grip. These are all technical terms. So we bring in some of those folks. But otherwise, we, we really enjoy working with local crews because they've all worked together before. So of course, of then course. we don't have to put them all in. Well, that's right. And you're using local and they like that. They love it. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is, which is not particularly about, well, it is about movies and it's about what you do. What is your purpose in life? Well, that's uh, that's an easy question, isn't it? Is it? <laughs> what is my, no. What is my purpose in life? Well, honestly, I would hearken back to what I learned as a child thinking I wanted to be a, law- a lawyer, I wanted to be a doctor. I think my purpose is to tell stories. I right. think that's, that's what I've settled on. And I'm very, very comfortable with that. Mm. I'm actually writing my first novel this year because the publisher of the Shatner book wanted to know, hey, what do you have? What's original that you've got in your brain? So I'm writing something and, and I may do another celebrity book with someone just to help tell their story so i think that's that's my passion in life that's your passion and and purpose yeah yeah you know it's funny i was talking with someone this will sound a bit conceited but you know i'm i'm 39 i'll be 40 in august and i wondered is this is this the time where i get into the midlife crisis stage and i was talking to my therapist actually and i i think we should normalize that it's good to go to therapy and especially in, in LA where you've just got to unload to somebody every week about what's going on and it shouldn't be your spouse. And I said, I, I, I guess I'm coming up to the stage where I should be having a midlife crisis, but I don't look at my life with any thought of, oh, the things I haven't done. I actually look at it and go, I'm running out of things to do. I've been, Now, yes, I, I didn't make a $100 million film, but I've made films that are important to me. And I'm writing a book and it may or may not be a bestseller, but that doesn't matter because I'm doing it. 
And that has been really a nice revelation in the last few years of my life, just realizing I'm good. I'm really good with what I've done and what I'm doing. And it doesn't have to be on a grand scale. I'm telling stories. And if someone's listening, that's great. I like that because that's the way I feel about what I do. I mean, I'm right. good at it. I write small audiences. Yes, but, but you know, purpose is a really important thing to me. You know, what, what, what people's purpose is, you know. So it doesn't worry you particularly that it's not a $100 million movie. No, it really doesn't. Are you having fun? Yes, I'm having yeah. a lot of fun. You're having a lot of fun. And I think I'm honestly having more fun than I would if it were a $100, $100 million movie because I'd have to answer to so many people. Yes. And they'd all get mixed up and tell you, you have to do this or you have to do that just so they can justify having those jobs. Yeah. But having, I don't want to say control, I would say having the influence that I have mm. over my projects and being able to to have them reflect my values and the stories I want to tell in an unfiltered way, I think that's more important than all the financial success that might come with a bigger film. One of the last questions I was going to ask you is this. Is there one thing that you've done in your life that you'd never do again? Oh, I wish I'd had time to prepare for that. One thing in my life that I wouldn't do again. I don't know that there is. I mean, there are little bits and pieces where you go, oh, I should have asked that girl out or I shouldn't have said that thing to my parents. But they're so small, I, I can't even quantify what they were. So no, I honestly, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head that I wouldn't do again in, in, in any specifics, you know. Right. Well, that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe because you're so young that um, that, that hasn't come, you know. I mean, I mean, if, if you'd asked me that question, um, there are very few. I probably have a couple, but that's in the last 10 years, I suppose. Mm. But, yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, I think Sinatra said it best, right? Regrets. Yeah. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. That's right. No, that's good. That's good. Thank you. All right, Shatner. Um, I, I, and I'll, I'll put this, so I'll let you speak now because... I've never seen a Star Trek movie. I know nothing about it. I until I had to look it up what what he did on Star Trek to inform me so that I could have just a little bit more. And as I said, I'm reading the book, which you very kindly gave it to me, right? So tell me tell me about Shatner. Um, well, the first thing about Shatner is that he's a lot more than Star Trek, and he's kept himself relevant through. 70 years of his professional life. He turned 92 a few weeks ago and he's non-stop. I think he, he's afraid that if he stops, he'll die. And I think a lot of people who are non nonagenarians probably have a similar feel. But this is one of those things where my whole life has really been about, hey, I want to do that thing. Well, no one's going to ask me. No one's going to invite me. I guess I better ask. I better go do it. When I was at uni university, I thought, be fun to be in a band. I played guitar and violin and, and piano. I thought I can sort of sing. I'll see if someone wants to be in a band with me. And I started just as, an, as a two-person cover band with Justin Zeltzer, who was in my year as well. And so I thought, all right, I'll do that. I'll be in a band. Or no one's going to ask me to direct the student play. I'll propose it. I'll go do it. So it's the same thing with the William Shatner book. I had met him on three separate occasions for five seconds, came into the Haven's room, uh, Haven Riders room, introduced himself. I went to his charity horse show. He's a big equestrian and big philanthropist. Met him there for five seconds. Met him backstage at my friend's show when they were on a CBS sitcom together. So he had no reason to remember me, but I had his assistant's email address from our time on Haven. And I was on holiday with my wife, actually in the Caribbean, and I told her I wouldn't do any work, but I had this thought no one's ever done an autobiographical look at Shatner's life through the lens of the no-win scenario, which is something that, that does come up in Star Trek. And so I emailed his assistant and I said, hi, I don't know if you remember me. I was a writer on Haven. I had this idea for a book for Mr. Shatner. Is anyone on his team taking pictures? And I thought, okay, I've sent it out into the ether. I've asked the question. I won't die wondering. There is no worst case scenario here. It doesn't matter. They could say no. They could say nothing. I'm in the same position I already was. And to my surprise, she wrote back to me the same day and said, I've spoken to Bill. He'd like to call you tomorrow at three o'clock. So I thought, all right, I'm going to have a call with William Shatner. And that's a big deal for me and a big deal for my mother and, and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, this is great because if all I get is the phone call, that's good. I'm good with that. You know, even if we never write the book. 
So he calls me and he's got this very imposing deep timbre in his voice. And he says, so you have a book for me? And I said, yes. And I pitched my heart out. You know, you've, you've been down and out in the 70s. You were living in your car and you, and you had nothing. And then you built yourself back up. And then you did TJ Hooker. And then you did Boston Legal. And then you won two Emmys. And, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And just when, when you think you're out, you come roaring back. And, and this is the book and all that. And there was this pause. And he says, I think it would be arrogant for me to tell anyone, this is how you should run your life. I only know what's worked for me. And so I don't have any wisdom to impart to anyone. And I'm thinking, all right, so I haven't got it. I haven't sold him, but I'm being told by William Shatner that he doesn't like the book, but I'm having the conversation. And then he says, for me, what gets, he's I think 89 or 90 at the time. He says, what gets me through the day is these little moments that I find. And then he related to me this story when he was driving along a freeway in Southern Ontario in the 70s. And there was an apple orchard that was growing over the side of the freeway. So he pulled over to the side of the road and he stole an apple and bit into it. And he said, I can still hear the crack of the skin of the apple. I can still taste the juices flowing down my throat. For whatever reason, that apple had reached its perfect maturation point at the exact second that I bit into it. And that was a perfect moment. And I look for those everywhere, whether it's riding horses or looking at nature or reading and finding out everything I can about the world. And I just paused and I said, well, Bill, that's the book. And so then he said, well, why don't you write me a few pages? And if I like it, we'll see if someone wants to buy it. And so we kind of just went from there and we got an editor and an agent on board and we produced a 150 page proposal, which was an introduction, three full chapters and an outline of what the rest of the book would be. And at the time, neither of us knew he was going to go to outer space. That happened while we were doing that. So the day he went to space was the day we sent the proposal to publishers. And within 48 hours, we had a deal because I asked. I mean, that's, that's, it seems that you've lived your life in that way. If you want to do something, you go and ask for it. Yeah. You know, and, you, and you propose it or you suggest it and say, well, no, I'll go and do it. No one's going to ask me. Well, it's, it started like that when, when we used to do the house play. That's no, right. no one was going to write it, so I wrote it. And yeah, then you said right. I could do it, or that's you said right. I could edit the magazine that's or right. whatever. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The interesting about um, Shatner's story about the apple, he, he didn't re- relate that to um, the Garden of Eden at all, did he? No, he didn't. It was just a, just a moment, <laughs> just a perfect moment for him. Yeah, no, he should have. He should have. He <laughs> that should would have been good. No, I, I mean, it, it's, there is a lot of advice you know, here, especially about families. Yeah, that's really important it's to really him. It's really important to him. And yeah. and that comes through pages and pages, you know, in different little things, you know. I have to say, I thought the first the first chapter, I thought, no, no, I, I'm not going to go. It meanders very, a little. It meanders a little. And yet then it then starts to, start to speak to me, you know, and I thought, well, this is good. I tell everyone about the book. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really, I, I really want to hear from you when you've finished it because – the last chapter, not the epilogue. The epilogue was incredible because he was in. While we were working on the book, we interviewed Ben Folds, who helped resurrect Shatner's music career, as it were. And he even says, "I can't sing, but I wanted to convey something and through spoken word and whatever." And while we were interviewing him, Ben Folds actually said, "I'm I'm the curator for the National Symphony in Washington D.C." and I'm putting on this whole series of of concert events, and one of them is to celebrate Earth Day. Do you want to come over and perform some of your songs about the environment and about nature and all that? And he said, sure. So we went to Washington and we went to the Kennedy Center and Shatner performed six songs and Ben Folds was on the piano and had arranged the orchestra and everything. And that was the real culmination of the book, which became the epilogue. And then it was so surreal hanging out afterwards at the Watergate Hotel where they're totally in on the joke. The key cards say, you don't need to steal this. And I'm sitting having scotch with 91-year-old Shatner and I'm talking with him and this friend of his, this bald guy with his very attractive girlfriend sitting on his lap. And then um, he leans over and he says, oh, hi, I'm Jeff. It's Jeff Bezos. And we're just having a normal conversation because neither of us knew each other. And so that was surreal. But the last chapter, I'd love to hear from you when you finish it because it's called When I'm Gone. And it's all about, he says, I'm dying. I know I'm going to die. And it's going to come far sooner than I would like. And I am breathless trying to get ahead of it. And it's all about not just the things, 
people will miss him because he looms large in in pop culture and in his family. He's got a huge family, lots of grandkids, great grandkids and all that. But he said, I'm going to miss those things. My granddaughter is 18 and she took a gap year and went to Rome. And I want to know what her life is going to look like in I 20 or that. 30 years. Yeah, I read yeah. that, yeah. And, and so that last chapter is about that. Well, okay. I, I will definitely give you my impressions. But so far on that, I, would, I could give you an easy um, response now, but I won't. Just about the singing, right? He wanted to... <laughs> yeah. Um, I've always said, I always said to the people in Hone House, when I sing at Honefest is my last year. So last year I sang at Honefest. But you're and still here, aren't you? No, no, no. As Housemaster. As Housemaster, yeah. yeah. Right. And I, and I um, organised um, Roy Valentine, who was head prefect in 2018 during mm-hmm. the centenary year, who is James, you know, James Valentine on the radio? Sure, sure. Right? His son. Wow. And, and he came and played and sang with me at, at Honefest. What did you sing? Uh, Let It Be. Oh, wow. I thought, this is it. That's great. Let well, you and, I, you and I bonded over our, our Beatles. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we Beatles did. Beatles love, yeah. Well, it's been a great pleasure, uh, an absolute pleasure um, having you this morning. And uh, thank you for your time. And uh, this podcast will be a very, very important addition to the podcast series. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Great seeing you. Thank you. Good to see you too. I hope you will continue with me on this journey as we delve into the memories of Cranbrook and the many people who are connected with this great school.